I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis. And this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And today we bring you an episode that revels in the extraordinary mix of adventure, horror, myth and fact that makes maritime history the best type of history. We're finding out about the history of castaways, of people set adrift on open boats, marooned by accident or even on purpose. This is the history of being abandoned, of being adrift, of being alone. Many never came back and are lost to history, a tiny dot vanishing on the horizon of the past, never to be seen again, while others did come back and they told their story. This means that historians have been able to study castaways and their experiences and what a history it is. To find out more, I spoke with maritime historian Graham Feiler, who has spoken with us before on the history of the Mary Celeste and what a fine episode that was. So please check it out. It's one of our most popular. Luckily for him, Graham was safe at home when we recorded this podcast. And so, comfy, warm, fed, healthy, clothed and sane, here's Graham. Graham, thank you very much indeed for joining me this morning. Thanks very much, Sam, for your invitation. Right, castaways. What? what, The more you think about castaways, the more complicated they are and the more different types of castaways you can identify. Why don't you tell me a bit more generally about a castaway? Well, castaways come in different colours, shapes, haircuts and uh, lifestyles (laughs) and whatever, genders. Um... What we usually think of as castaways are castaways from ships or other vessels that have had a drastic catastrophe at sea or some major collision uh, with a coastline, an island, a shipwreck, in other words. Once that vessel has been basically is no longer a platform of security, then the people from it are crossing a line or have to cross this line of great security into one of no security a- at all. Mm. Let's just talk about that. So, I mean, the, the the ship itself, it's got it's got food, it's got other people, it's got safety from the elements and um, 
governance. There's a system on board, isn't there, to kind of maintain security and safety? Yes, it has a population. It has all of those things. And I, having thought about it quite a bit, think that in light of the castaways' predicament, is that the governance of their uh, small community is paramount because they need to have someone at the head of the pack, the leader who sustains the hope of rescue, survival, and so on. Yeah. Notwithstanding the fact that most of them are cast away in small boats or rafts with no provisions or very scant provisions uh, at all, and very, you know, more dangerously, no fresh water. Mm. I think it's interesting that you um, you can have castaways who have uh, found themselves on a raft, as you mentioned, or an open boat. There are plenty of examples of those. And then you've got castaways who find themselves on a remote stretch of mainland. Others find themselves on islands. Um, it's the, the different way that you can experience being a castaway that I think is fascinating. Yes, and they... Uh... For the most part, the the least, I would say, the least perilous form of castaway ship, if you like, is being on a, say, a desert island or a deserted island, um, because there are always resources there that will sustain you. Vegetation uh, in some parts of the world, like the small islands in the Southern Ocean, for example. Um, south of New Zealand and Australia, the uh, Auckland Islands and the Antipodes Islands, where a number of uh, shipwrecks happened that were famous for how long the survivors uh, spent and were able to resource sustenance to keep them going for, in some cases, over a year. And in one case, in the uh, Auckland Islands, there was a shipwrecked uh, party of survivors there at one end of the island and was so rugged and inhospitable that they weren't aware at all of the presence of survivors from another shipwreck there at the other end of the island. But they all, <laughs> the one I think, were uh, they were there for 18 months or so and they survived, the others less so. But they all, man, what they had and what the leader of them had to... Uh, get out of them was the resourcefulness to uh, to sustain themselves with whatever uh, means of subsistence they had. In those areas of the world, it was often uh, walruses, seals, mammals, uh, and seabirds, including sea uh, seabirds' eggs in particular. But very little in the way of pla of plant life, except for rough tussock grasses and things like that. But in other parts of the world, uh, on islands where... Uh, I'll give you an, a, an example of one of those. Was uh, at the end of the chain of the Hawaiian islands were um, some islands near what was called as French Frigate Shoals, Midway Island and Ocean Island, which is at the very far end of the the Hawaiian Islands chain. There are several shipwrecks there of um, motor ships, actually, you know, not sailing ships. 
and they stayed on the uh, on the island and there were 60 or 70 people from one of the shipwrecks and they were perfectly um, well sustained by the albatross eggs and albatrosses themselves uh, but not from the provisions left over from the ship so they were they were and the weather was relatively benign rainfall and that sort of thing whereas in other parts of the world you don't get much rainfall you certainly don't get very benign weather especially in the southern ocean um it, around the the Crozet Islands I'm thinking of, for example, but most interestingly and most dramatically were the islands of uh, south of New Zealand and Australia, as I said, some very famous and infamous shipwrecks there. The whole story of castaways is also linked with trade, isn't it? I think this is interesting. So you have um, people who maybe have a shipwreck, and, and the whole point is that they end up drifting to a part of the ocean which is not regularly passed by shipping so even in the kind of the you know the mid 19th century you're getting people who are cast away even though there is quite intense global trade going on so there are still parts of the world which are which are not regularly visited not only that but they were parts of the world where the oceans are so extensive that you could have a lot of shipping going by but they are on shipping routes so they, if a ship or even a, a string of ships goes within 20 miles of where you happen to be, you know, lying on some atoll in the middle of the Pacific, nobody would see you, nobody would know you were there. Remember, this is all happening before there was any s substantive means of communication, because we get castaways these days, I mean, castaways of from yachts that have sunk and whatever, but we also have IPRB emergency beacons and all sorts of other means of communication. In those days, you have to remember, there's absolutely no means of communication whatsoever, apart from a distress signal, which um, might happen to be seen by someone, but by a, you know, a, a very sm small uh, chance. So uh, when they were wrecked on islands in the Pacific, although there was a lot of, of trading and trading vessels going around the Pacific, and by the way, it was mainly around the Pacific that you and the Indian Ocean, Southern Indian Ocean, that you get these um, big sort of uh, events of castaways um, getting shipwrecked or, or adrift, for example. It wasn't... In the, in the Atlantic, it was mostly of collisions leaving ships sunk and the survivors in small boats. And um, one of those, actually, that I wanted to tell you about, which was very interesting from a number of points of view, did happen in the Atlantic, which mm -hmm. was the sinking of the yacht Mignonette in uh, 1884. And this was interesting for... One very big reason and another uh, sort of coincidental reasons. Now, the yacht Minionette, which was a small 19 ton, it's about 35, 40 foot boat, was being taken to Australia uh, or ordered to be taken to Australia by its owner under a crew of four people the captain, Dudley, first mate, Stevens. Maybe 
just a seaman, Brooks, and a 19-year-old cabin boy by the name of Richard Parker. And they left Southampton to uh, go to Sydney in May 1884, stopped at Madeira on the way, and uh, by early July of 1884, they were in the Mid-Atlantic, roughly halfway between uh, Africa and South America, taken over by a severe storm. The ship was knocked about. It sunk. The four of them got into a small boat, and they were adrift with two one-pound tins of turnips in their boat. And that was it. No water, no <laughs> thing. Oh, no. Anyway, so they're adrift, and there's no, they're right in the middle. There's no, they weren't in the, um, in the shipping lanes at all. Anyway, they had their, their two, two, two pounds of turnips. After the fourth day adrift, they caught a small turtle, which sustained them for a few days. But then, uh, on, after about three weeks or so, uh, by the way, the boat was 13 feet long. Mm. That's not much, is it? And they were ailing. Anyway, after about three, almost three weeks, it was decided between Captain Dudley and first mate Stevens, but not Brooks, Brooks had no part of it, that they would have to kill the cabin boy Parker, who was about, sources say 17, 18, but I think mm. he was 19 years old. Anyway, they were pretty, um, they were uh, in the last stages. So they, between the two of them, decided Parker's got to go to sustain us. So, uh, unless a ship appeared within 24 hours. No ship did appear. Dudley approached Parker, who was lying in the bows of the boat, and said, Parker, your time has come. Or words to that effect. Took out his penknife, and, and Parker didn't have much to say, except for, who, me, sir? Anyway, uh, he took out his penknife, stuck him in the jugular, drank their blood, opened up the body, ate the heart and the liver and bits of the body over the next four days before a ship came on the scene, the bark uh, Montezuma, Moctezuma, a German bark that was headed to uh, from the west coast of South America, I think, uh, to uh, Falmouth. They found that the uh, three of them now, because the Barker was no more, or he had become subsumed into the two, because I don't think Brooks had any part of it. But um, anyway, they took them on board. They uh, took them back to, uh, they took them to Falmouth, where they arrived uh, early September of that year, uh, 6th of September. In the meantime, Dudley and, Dudley and Stevens, but mostly Dudley, had written an account of the incident. He had no compunctions of doing so, because he had no expectation that it was wrong or illegal or anything to kill someone in order for them to survive. So he had no thoughts that that would be used against him in any sort of trial or arrest or whatever. Anyway, he was arrested, so was Brook, uh, so was uh, Stevens, uh, and tried for the murder of the boy Parker, uh, and he was found guilty. There was a huge amount of sympathy for the uh, the two of them because of their situation. It was a life and death or life or death situation. 
But the benchmark case of English law decided that um, uh, necessity for survival is not a justification for murder, even in those extreme circumstances on the high seas without the boundaries of the territory in which they were being tried and convicted, i.e. England. Mm. So they were convicted, they, they handed down the mandatory death penalty, uh, but that was commuted by Queen Victoria to six months in prison. A lot had to do with the fact that there was so much public sympathy for them. Yeah. Anyway, they were out within six months and got on with their life, and, and that was it. But it was a very interesting legal case because it was a very interesting moral predicament for them. And to tell you the truth, it was nowhere near unique that people, castaways, ate the bodies of other shipmates or comrades or companions in small boats or in other similar circumstances. What was somewhat Ill unusual was that they actually drew, that uh, they killed a person in order for that to happen. I wonder if it was unusual that they killed the youngest person. I think it, he was certainly the most susceptible. Yeah. He wouldn't have put up a fight. He was a young guy, and he was he was pretty. Um, you know, he was. They were all in a very emaciated and and weakened condition. That was almost certainly the case. He wouldn't have objected. Also, because Dudley was the captain, he was uh, his his uh, uh, Stevens was the first mate. It was a sense of the pecking order there. Well, who's going to get the biggest peck when it came down to it? You know. And Parker was the boy. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I, I thought what you mentioned there about um, public sympathy is interesting. So there's this is there's a lot of this in the press, isn't it? It's covered in the press the um, the inquiry, which I believe is at Falmouth, as well. And it made me sort of think about, as you said, it wasn't um, a strange occurrence, and being cast away was not an unusual occurrence as well. And it made me wonder whether, as a society, we had more understanding, more sympathy um, of you know the the difficulties of being at sea um we were kind of more attuned to the likelihood of this happening well i can tell you one thing we certainly had more sympathy more attunement with the sea itself and with the mariner's life um lifestyle as it were we don't today because we don't have that uh, connection but uh, in those days in those years there was a great connection because that was the modus operandi of international of international trade, not least because we the British actually had a merchant merchant marine, merchant navy. The fact is that there had been I wouldn't say numerous, but certainly quite a few other cases where people had been uh, castaways had been the cannibalized at sea after they had died and their companions who were barely at the edge of existence had basically eaten bits of their flesh to stay alive and the only reason we know about this is because they did stay alive and we can only guess at the number of incidents where you know they didn't and uh, yeah. but there were basically 
it was not an unknown thing. But I think also that this public sympathy came from the fact that the, the experience of castaways and shipwrecked mariners was something that occurred at regular intervals anyway. You know, it was, uh, it was a, reported in the press. We just don't have that sort of thing because life at sea today is far, far more safe and secure than it ever was in the 19th and, um, century and before that. Um, but a lot of these things were never found out about until... Uh... If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Un until and unless they survived, for one thing. But it would have been months afterwards. The mignonette example is fascinating, and it's from 1880, but it makes me think that even by then, people had been familiar with stories of people being adrift in open boats for, for a very long time. And I'm thinking particularly here of the Mutiny on the Bounty, so the 17, 1780s and Bly. And that's, that's an extraordinary story as well, isn't it, with, with people being adrift in open boats? It's, a very, it's just an extraordinary but also multifaceted story. It takes in so many dimensions because Fletcher Christian, who is first mate on the bounty, uh, organized a mutiny against what he and his mutineers perceived as being um, cruel and unusual punishment by Captain Bly in the Royal Navy, when probably it was not particularly cruel and unusual. It may have been hard, and it definitely was hard, but whether it was cruel and unfair is a different matter altogether. But in that case, uh, Fletcher Christian just put uh, Bly and uh, 
18 or so other uh, uh, bounty men, crew members, into a small boat, 19 foot long. And that was an ex really extraordinary small boat voyage in itself. They were forcibly cast away, chucked a few bags of um, hard tack bread, and then said, uh, you know, find your own way to uh, wherever you're going to go. And he, he did it under sail in a small boat in 40 days. And if you look from where he was cast away off the island of Tofua in the middle of the Pacific, near the Tonga uh, Islands, uh, all the way to Timor. Uh, and if you think that's in, that's Indonesia now, going up, uh, landing on the, Austra the uh, northeast Australian coast through the Torres Straits, and to Timor, where there was a Dutch settlement uh, that he understood would be, um, you know, the best, the best destination for them. But the other, and he reached it in 40 days, which, to my mind, and he only had about two or three inches of freeboard on that, you know, the boat to go all that distance. And it wasn't all plain sailing either. But he lost not a single person on that voyage. The other interesting aspect was that the bounty mutineers themselves under Fletcher Christian uh, went back to Tahiti. They had a cohort of Tahitian men and women, and uh, Fletcher Christian's decided, well, we've got, and with the, uh, some of the other Englishmen, we've got to find a place to go and hide out because basically they're going to come and get us because it was mutiny in the Royal Navy. So they said, um, look, we've got to find this, the, the most remote spot we can find to um, as a hideaway. And eventually they decided on Pitcairn Island, which was uh, 1,200 miles or so southeast of uh, Tahiti, where they were. They arrived there, set up a settlement. They burnt the bounty at the bottom of the, uh, of the cliffs there in Bounty Bay. And that basically... Uh, they cast themselves away on Pitcairn Island to be yeah. safe. Now, what was interesting, and what I just, I'd like to go into this a bit as a, perhaps as a final thing, is that the Pitcairn Islanders, at the time, there were about 70 or 80 of them uh, that set up a settlement there. By the mid-19th century, i.e. 1850s or so, the population of Pitcairn had grown to almost 200. So uh, with the population now uh, too large to uh, be supported wholly on this small Pitcairn island, they all uh, requested and were displaced to Norfolk Island between New Zealand and New Caledonia in 1856, 193 of them. Well, in... 1858, two years later, a ship by the name of the Wild Wave sailed from San Francisco. It was wrecked on Oeno Island, which is one of the Pitcairn group of islands, and they sailed, uh, they left Oeno in a small boat and said, look, we've got to find some better place. Oeno is completely deserted. It has no fresh water, not even trees. It wouldn't support life. It's a wildlife uh, refuge uh, these days. But uh, So they arrived in on the island of Pitcairn in March 
1858, in that period when Pitcairn was completely deserted. There was a small <laughs> settlement there. There were chickens running around. There were pigs running around. There were still corn and plants uh, uh, being, uh, you know, growing. But in that two-year period when Pitcairn was deserted, these shipwreck castaways from the Wild Wave arrived just when it was completely deserted. So, but anyway, they had the use of uh, a lot of materials there, and it, if Pitcairn is a very fertile place. I've, I've been there, and it's a, a fantastic, a fantastically uh, fertile place for all sorts of, of vegetables and uh, sugarcane and coconuts and whatever. But it's um, it's a very inhospitable for anyone coming across it and landing on it because. It's bounded by cliffs on all sides. It doesn't have a nice sandy beach or anything like that. Have they embraced their Have they embraced their history of being a, a location for castaways, or um, is it a kind of a forgotten history? It hadn't been a. It wasn't really. The, Pitcairn at that time was simply a group of far-flung um, people of community who. Uh, ships stopped there mainly to pick up provisions of fresh fruit and vegetables. And they often called it the island, especially whaling ships, because it was in their track. But a ship sailing from West Coast, North America, uh, San Francisco, Seattle, that track often took them very near Pitcairn as they sailed southwest and then southeast to go around the Horn. So they, they were visited quite often. But um, so they were known about, but they, it was nothing particularly special in the way we think of them today. You know, they didn't have uh, press relations uh, boosting their tourism appeal. In fact, these days, they, they're on full throttle for that because the population is only about 50, 55. But they do get a lot of cruise ships these days. But in that time, when the wild wave castaways, there's absolutely no one there. So they stayed for four months as they, uh, Captain Knowles of the ship were built and rigged a small boat for them to go on to the Marquesas Islands, which were some way towards the northwest, uh, northeast, and uh, well known as a refuge of, uh, you know, a, a port of civilization. In other words, Nukuhiva, that sort of area. And, and then about six months after they left, in July of 1858, in January 1859, the first small group of Pitcairners came back from Norfolk Island to repopulate Pitcairn. I, I think they just wanted to go back home, basically. And a small a group of family members came back to Pitcairn. God knows what they felt when they saw that their, that their houses had been slept in and their wood uh, used to make some ship or whatever. I, don't, I think Knowles left a, a letter or some sort of document to say that they had been there, but uh, I should think that the Pitcairners were pretty surprised to have found someone cast away there in their absence. Yeah. But I think in the it was remarkable that in the 230-year existence of settlement of Pitcairn, that these castaways arrived right in the the period of two years when there's no nobody there. That's extraordinary, isn't it? The um. It made me wonder how you um, kind of research stories like this. Was there, are there decent accounts of this in the press or are you looking at private diaries and journals? I, 
these days it's uh what I do is I basically go online. I used to go to uh, the Guildhall Library, look up Lloyd's, look at Lloyd's old Lloyd's list under the casualties section, and you'd often get a clue as to what happened, and I'd make a note, or they had a report. These days you can go online, research old newspapers from the 19th century in particular, put in a, wor a, a, a search word like castaways, or as I often do, terrible tales of the sea. <laughs> and then you find something and it's an opening. And then you prize it open a little bit more. And then you prize it and you go into something. And there's one thing, I'll return to the mignonette just for a moment to show you what I mean. I didn't know this when I was looking at the mignonette as a castaway story, but it was a coincidence that the boy's name was Richard Parker. In Ad Edgar Allan Poe's novella, The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket, in 1838, which was almost 40 years before the mignonette, there were four castaways in the story. There were four castaways in a small boat who drew lots to decide which one should be sacrificed to, have to save the others. It fell to the person the man who suggested the idea in the first place, who is a sailor by the name of Richard Parker, which was mm. the name of the boy who was killed on the mignonette. And the other yeah, coincidence was in Jan Mattel's 2001 book, The Life of Pi, where the boy is in the lifeboat with the Bengal tiger. The name of the Bengal tiger was Richard Parker. Yeah. I'm not sure coincidence is the right word. I think those the people who wrote those both of those books knew very well about the story of the mignonette. You think? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we should just also talk very briefly about the whale ship Essex, because that's one of my favourite stories of people being being cast adrift. We've had the story of the mutiny and the bounty, where you've got um, one human making another human a castaway. But this is a very different story, isn't it? Tell us about the whale ship Essex. The Essex came out of Nantucket, and I'm I didn't look it up recently, but I have read so much about it, but, you know, dates and things. I think it was in the 1820s, and I think, at the back of my mind, 1823, when whaling was at its height, or getting towards its height. So the whaleship Essex out of Nantucket by Captain Pollard arrived on the, um, what was called the line, or the, uh, the equator of the Pacific, and it was essentially rammed by a whale, it sunk, the men got out in three boats, uh, but it, it, they continued to uh, go southeast, they wanted to reach the uh, coast of South America. Now that was a long way from where they were rammed and the ship sunk, by, the Essex sunk by a whale, but they did get there. Two of the boats arrived and, um, and they were rescued just off the coast of Chile, I think it was, or Peru, or northern Chile, southern Peru. Um, but the interesting thing, uh, the most interesting thing and most notable thing about the Essex, the sinking of the whale ship Essex, is that it was the inspiration for Melville's uh, Moby Dick. It wasn't, uh, which was published in 1851, so it was quite a long way away. But um, it wasn't the only ship sunk by a whale, and it, those weren't the only castaways uh, cast away 
by a sunken whale ship, but they were the most famous. And from memory, I think there were uh, there were three boats and only two um, were rescued. The other was lost at sea, never heard of again. But the the there were a lot of interesting things about that, and I think cannibalism uh, played a part in it. But also Captain Pollard, who became he went back to Nantucket, and in his old age, he you know he was basically a broken and uh, broken old man there. He, they didn't uh, give him any monuments or anything. But it was one of the great non-fiction books of the sea concerned that sinking of the whale ship Essex, which is in the heart of the sea, which is a, a great read, actually, just for the drama. And it was a, a very, very dramatic incident because it was retold by the survivors, Pollard, and but mainly by Nichols, I think, is what, was one of the crew members. And a lot of these, you know, the, you ask, where do I get these from? A lot of them, uh, the stories are from narratives told by survivors of the, of, the, of shipwrecks or strandings or uh, collisions and, and whatever. So they get reported as verbatim um, narratives of the incidents themselves. And that I find most interesting because they're so immediate. The, you know, you're, you're right there. You're, when you're reading these things, you're there in the presence of the aftermath of whatever incident is being narrated by a survivor of the, uh, of the incident, of the catastrophe, as it were. Yeah. I come from a place that was actually began life as a settlement of castaways. The Sea Venture was taking a shipload of colonists to Jamestown in Virginia, 1609, wrecked in a hurricane, a September hurricane, off the northeast coast of Bermuda. It was wrecked. The um, everybody got ashore alive. Uh, there was no Bermuda had never been populated beforehand, and that was the beginning of the settlement of Bermuda as a British colony uh, from 1609, of which I am a descendant. <laughs> Fantastic. What a wonderful claim to fame. I think we should find out a little more about that another day. Graeme, thank you very much indeed for talking to me today. Sam, thanks very much. Thank you all so much for listening. Now is the time for me to ask you for help. Please leave us a review or rating on iTunes. If you're listening on an iPhone, it's really easy to do. We've had 119 five-star ratings and everyone helps us rise up the rankings and get listened to by more people, which helps us do our job to help people appreciate and understand the importance of maritime history. Please also check out our fantastic YouTube channel, some mind-blowing material there. Recently, a fantastic little animation showing how composite ships were made, based on the most beautiful hand-drawn sketches you've ever seen, made by Harry Cornish, who was chief ship surveyor and artist extraordinaire at the Lloyd's Register Foundation in the mid-19th century. Please remember this podcast comes from both the Lloyd's Register Foundation and the Society for Nautical Research. You can find the History and Education Centre of the Lloyd's Register Foundation at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk. 
and uh, please make sure you check out their brilliant project, Maritime Innovation in Miniature, filming the world's best ship models with the latest camera equipment. It is completely extraordinary. Uh, I can tell you the team has just come back from Sweden where we filmed four models and also the Science Museum. And um, it really, really is worth seeing. So just Google Maritime Innovation in Miniature. It'll take you straight to the videos. Uh, this podcast also comes from the Society for Nautical Research. Please go there, snr.org.uk, and please join up. It's a fantastic way not only of finding out all about the maritime past from the very best of the business, but also of meeting people. And I very hope to meet you one day at one of their meetings.